giant robot smashing into other giant robots. This is the Giant Robot Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast. I'm your host, Chad Pytel, and with me today is Tracy Osborne, designer, developer, author, and the creator of WeddingLovely.com. Tracy, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. So what are you spending your time on now? Right now, I've been kind of splitting my time between Wedding Lovely, the startup, and my book stuff, which has mm-hmm. been, it's a bit of a juggle. And between these two projects, because I'm self-employed, uh, my husband came up to me and he was like, you need to start making more money because that's the, the embarrassing conversation as a self-employed person. We're like, crap, uh, things are not going as perfectly as mm-hmm. I would have hoped. So I'm also looking at doing a short-term contract just to raise my revenue. It's disappointing, but... And it's it sucks kind of to have to juggle those three things, but I I find it's it's better long term than getting a real job. <laughs> well, okay, so I was gonna ask, like, do you think about getting a quote unquote real job? I do. I actually just went through this process of interviewing with GitHub because there was this this job listing came out that actually I was like, oh, maybe I'll like break my whole self employed for the last eight years thing with GitHub because it's. This job looked really cool. And I went through all the interviews, like multiple interviews since December. And then they emailed me saying, wait, never mind. That that job doesn't exist. Uh, hmm. Good luck. That's <laughs> too bad. And it was like, ah, I, went, I mean, well, I was just starting to Well, maybe it's for the get, best, right? Yeah, right. And I was just getting that like, comes to terms with, oh, I could have benefits, you know? <laughs> well, you live in Canada now. You don't need benefits, right? I know. Yeah, it would be nice to have dental <laughs> covered. That's not covered. But yeah, everything else is pretty great. The whole reason I moved to Canada it kind of came about because of, I don't have any health problems, but we were still dealing with insurance BS. Mm-hmm. So that was part of the, the equation when we, my husband and I were like, you know, we can move back to Canada. He's a citizen. Yeah, maybe this will be a good decision, long-term decision. So why did you become self-employed in the first place? And why have you avoided getting a tradition, more traditional job? So I don't think I've ever had a traditional job. My very first like quote unquote real job in university uh, was like, a year before I graduated. A friend of mine had a startup, and by startup I mean a bunch of guys in a garage down the street from the university, all university graduates, and then there was me. And they needed a designer, so I just started working with them for fun. So definitely not a traditional employment, and that lasted for about four and a half years, and it was great working with friends. I was the only designer there. So as the web was evolving, this is in, say, 2008, 2009, uh, I had to teach myself CSS. And I had to keep my eye on what's happening in the web world by myself. Like there was no one telling me what I need to learn next. And that was a cool experience, not having a boss per se that knew more than me. I had to just constantly learn myself. So that set me up into this whole self-employment thing, because after four and a half years there, whole story with them that kind of blew up the whole working with friends thing can do that when money gets involved. And when that happened, then I was like, Oh, you know, I live in the Bay Area. My husband has a startup, all my friends have a startup, maybe I can do a startup too. So that's kind of how I jumped in just seeing other people do it. And I was like, ah, that looks like fun. You mentioned that you're feeling like you need to make more money now, more revenue. (laughs) But I, I noticed that Wedding Lovely is free. Free-ish. Depends on what you are. Yes. So do you want to, just for people who don't know, what is Wedding Lovely? Uh, Wedding Lovely is the startup I I launched after that summer of um, figuring out what I need to do. And it originally was, I wanted to um, figure out how I can help people work with wedding invitation designers. So 
I want to emphasize that because I'm not a weddings person, Mm -hmm. but I love design. My degree is in design. I love web design. And I was thinking, you know, what if I could make it easier for someone to work with a local designer stationer to make their wedding invitations rather than the easy thing, which is like working with a big online company. So that's how it all started. I wanted to figure out a way to work with businesses. Mm -hmm. And I built that website and it took off. And I ended up just, I didn't know much about coding back then. So I basically took this website and I cloned it, like the whole code base. I cloned it, launched a clone of it called Wedding Planner Love. First one was Wedding Invite Love. Then there was Wedding Planner Love. Then there was Wedding Photo Love. And then there was Wedding Venue Love. So I built eight of these clones. And then I was like, wait, I should really make sure that I don't, uh-huh. when I had to do a new feature, it was copying and pasting between all eight of these clones. It's ridiculous. It was yeah. a really weird process. But I just kept building and trucking along and eventually got into 500 startups in the Bay Area Mountain View as a solo founder, which was pretty cool to have them take that risk on me and didn't really raise any more money than that. There was like a tiny round afterwards. I just took 500 startups money and a few other checks from some other investors. And at that point, I was just working at these businesses on these clones websites. And that's the point when I decided that I need to also work with like directly with people planning their wedding, mm-hmm. which I had been avoiding so far. Like before it was like an SEO thing where people can land on the website and work with those businesses and the businesses pay me. And that's when Wedding Lovely, the official wedding planning app launched. So it's free now and it walks people through the process of planning their wedding, putting your wedding date and it builds, I, what I hope is an easier to swallow plan than some of these other wedding planners do. Cause some of them are like, oh, you have 400 things to do before your wedding day. And I was like, that's ridiculous. Who wants to do that? Like the whole process of planning your wedding is really broken and stressful process. So with Wedding Lovely, I've tried to make it really friendly where it's like, okay, you probably want a photographer. Now, if you're low budget, here are some ways to like save some money. If you're high budget, here's some like great photographers to work with and try to make something like an app that was more like you're working with a family member to plan your wedding than mm-hmm. say the knot, which has been my big one I don't like. Right. So yeah, I launched that. I added that to the multitude of different websites that Wedding Lovely owns. So I think I have 11 different URLs and properties now. And oh, and one more thing is that when I launched it, it was actually a paid product. It was like, oh, pay me 80 bucks flat rate or like 10 bucks monthly rate for this wedding planning product. And no one paid for it. Mm -hmm. Some people did, but like pretty much no one paid for it in the the big scheme of things. And it's because it's so easy to find wedding planning advice online that why would you have to why would you pay for it? So after about a year of running that experiment, I just made it free. So I wanted to get focused on those businesses I worked with and maximize the amount of people that I was shuttling to these businesses. Mm-hmm. And how has that worked for you overall? It's been a roller coaster. And I guess that's a lot of startups. There's never been the hockey stick. But mm-hmm. the best part about working with businesses is that in the wedding industry, if my main customer, the people I'd be making money from was someone who was planning their wedding. Every single year, pretty much, I'd have to get a whole new customer base unless, you know, someone divorces and come back. And that's why where a lot of wedding startups ultimately fail is that in order to get a whole new set of customers year after year, they end up having to pay for advertising and paying for advertising. They're paying thousands of dollars advertising wedding blogs. And the whole industry is ridiculously expensive. So a lot of people bankrupt um, do that process of trying to find new customers year after year. So for me, working with businesses meant that 
these are people that stick around year after year. Like there's businesses that are paying me that have been paying me for eight years, like since the very beginning of the website. Mm -hmm. uh, they're friends. I've kept them around. And whenever someone comes to me saying, hey, can you have any advice for me as a jumping into the wedding industry? I usually say, look into businesses, look into partnering with someone that's going to last more than that year, because it's going to be a big uphill battle against the not or wedding wire, or these big established companies to pull customers away from them. So is Wedding Lovely like the future? I, I guess the, the reason why I ask is <laughs> you obviously you work on Wedding Lovely, but you also actively do other side projects which earn you money. Yeah. So rent. So rent how, is important. <laughs> when you look at everything that you're working on, how do you decide where to spend your time and is that evolving? So I'm not going to recommend this, but a lot mm -hmm. of it's just like what's the closest fire I can put out? you know, depending on what I'm working on. So with uh, Wedding Lovely, for a good four years in the middle, I was completely solo. And it was a lot of it was like, I want to save money by not hiring. And so therefore, any money that comes in through Wedding Lovely comes to me, and then the money issues would, would decrease. Uh, that said, after four, five years, I started getting burnt out after working on it for so long. So I started hiring. And that was a big risk for me. It was was hiring in a um, with the limited amount of revenues coming in, but I was burnt out, and that was the only way I can continue Wedding Lovely, just have it continue. So last year, I hired someone who had worked with me part time a few years ago to help eat with the blog, and she emailed me saying, "I really liked working for you part time. I know you probably can't pay me full time, but is there any way I can come back?" And I was like, "That's really cool," because she she left for that's mm -hmm. a long story. And I gave her the offer. I said, hey, I'm burnt out. And if you can, I will take whatever I'm paying myself 100% and just shuttle to you. And you can work part time and then we'll move you to full time when we can. And you run the business for me because I'm burnt out. Otherwise, it's going to shut down. And it's funny when that happens. Wedding Lovelace are doing way better than it's ever been before because I actually had someone who's enthusiastic about the business running mm -hmm. the business. So I've now pay her full time and I'm back to part time because I have my other projects to support me. We have another part timer in uh, the Pacific Northwest. We have another full timer in the Philippines, the Philippines virtual assistant, which is a whole cliche, but she's wonderful. And it's kind of the thing where I was like, oh, firing myself. I should have done that a long time ago because for a while I was like being stubborn, like, oh, it's really great that my startup has been going on for so many years. But was it really growing? Because I wasn't really passionate about it anymore. And bringing it, new people into the mix really um, helped save Wedding Lovely. Is that something that you could have done sooner? That's a good question because it's. I would say, if, of course, I could have done it sooner. Um, but it's also a mental thing for me. It was like giving up. Uh, not giving up. Um, yeah. Well, it felt like my giving hold. up to you at the time. Well, yeah, a little bit. But it's. It's. I have this like not correct feeling I could do things better than anyone else. Like I can do the blogging better. And if I hire someone, they're not going to do it as well as I could. So why hire? I know I can do the email marketing better. I can do the sales better. So it was like realizing that, well, like A, like even if it's not done any better than I could with my background and my experience of working on this business, uh, it frees me up to do other things. And B, what if they do do it better, you know? And that's that's how um, Jenny, how she she runs the business now. So mm -hmm. I should have done it earlier because I should have come to that conclusion earlier that I I needed to loosen my hold on all these various parts of the businesses. Um, and I think Wedding Lovely would, would have been better, but hindsight's also 2020. So is your goal now to get to full-time on Wedding Lovely? Probably not, actually. Um, 
that burnt outness has kind of stuck around, just to be mm-hmm. totally honest, you know? And I, like I mentioned briefly before, is that weddings, I'm not in it because I love weddings. I, I actually <laughs> And hopefully married. you only use your product <laughs> once, right? Right. And I eloped. I went to Las Vegas. <laughs> I went to the Little White Wedding Chapel. I did the most cliche wedding elopement ever um, on purpose because we thought it was funny. Like we got married in a... Um, on AstroTurf in this gazebo right next to a road and cars are like, the whole time. And I'm like, this is hilarious. This is like the funniest way of having gay married. Anyways, weddings itself. I love attending weddings, but the, the process of um, planning a wedding wasn't my thing. And that the whole thing about weddings is kind of ridiculous. And I think mm. anyone who's gone through a wedding says, would agree with me. Like the end result is, is great. And you have some great photos and then people go into this like PTSD and they're like, never again. I'm never <laughs> planning my wedding again. This is horrible. I'm eloping. You're so smart, Tracy. So are you in search of the other thing? Are you putting together other projects? What do you see as the path forward here? So this is where the books came into play. I taught myself how to code with Wedding Lovely. And when I, but that first tinge of, of I'm feeling burnt out, that, that first feeling came a few years ago. I wanted to see about like, okay, what can I do on the side that will kind of keep me happy and give me something new to work on? So that's, that's how the book started. I wrote my first book, which was Hello Web App. It's an introduction to building web apps using Django, which is what I use for Wedding Lovely. Uh, basically with Wedding Lovely, I, I taught myself how to code and then, as I taught myself how to code as a designer, as a someone without a computer science degree, and I figured things out, then I realized, you know, there's so many Django tutorials out there, and I mm-hmm. think they're all awful, mm-hmm. <laughs> especially after I figure out what's going on. Yeah. So that's when I was like, okay, I need a project to work on, and why not write the tutorial that I wish existed? And then in my typical ways, I just didn't want to write a blog post like most people would do. With my background in design, what my favorite classes in university was editorial design, I was like, well, I'm going to write a tutorial and I'm going to make the book and I'm going to print the book and I'm going to make this whole project because I just, I kind of jump into things like that. It's not also not necessarily a good thing, but it was fun. I ended up doing a Kickstarter for it. Kickstarter was great because it allowed me to test the, the idea that people actually wanted this book. Yeah. What point did you do the Kickstarter? What, did you already start writing and then do the Kickstarter or did you do the Kickstarter before you even started? I did it after I started writing. I I reached out to a few publishers just to see what kind of offers I could get. And I got an offer from, uh, I never remember their name. It's a really nice small tech printer that has a set amount of royalties. And it's something like 5% royalties for $8,000 advance or $5,000 advance and 12% royalties, something like that. Like mm-hmm. They have a set. It's public. And I got a yes from them. And I also reached out to a book apart because that was my dream. I'm like, okay, a book apart. They do a list apart. They do an event apart, all that conference series. And I was like, oh, if I can get published by them, then my career is made. And they were like, nope, not touching that. Django, who wants that? So those are just just the two I went through. And looking at that other publisher and their um, royalties, that's where the Kickstarter thing. Like I had a outline written for those publishers and i had i think probably the first two chapters written maybe more maybe the first like three thousand words so i had that done and then i looked at the kickstarter and i was like well i know how to make a book i know how to print a book i know how to design all that kind of stuff and with kickstarter i can get the money like an advance from a publisher 
and maybe even more money than a publisher would give me. And then I would own 100% of the royalties. Mm-hmm. And the, the other parts about publishing, like the marketing, I've heard mixed reviews from people who've gone with publisher, whereas like, like with O'Reilly, they, I tend to find people are enthusiastic. They're like, mm-hmm. oh, they did help me a lot. But then there's the other publishers who are like, oh, the publisher does nothing. Mm-hmm. You have to do it all yourself anyways. And that's why I was like, well, if I have to do it myself anyways, I might as well just do a Kickstarter and just get that 100% of the royalties. So that's where the um, the thought process came about. And thankfully, I have a friend who does video editing and production. So she came over and I offered to build her website for her if she would do my video for me. So in the space of 24 hours, we had a whole video produced for the initial Kickstarter. And after a month of, well, horrible hell, Kickstarters are never fun and they're all stressful. But at the end, I had $13,000. So that was pretty cool. What makes the that month or the you know while the Kickstarter is running stressful? <laughs> it's Kickstarter. It's like a you know in social media how you get kind of addicted to people following you and people liking your stuff. It's like Kickstarter is like that, but it involves money. Mm-hmm. So the first day, all your friends and family that want to support you start throwing money at you. I joke around that Kickstarter is the nice way of asking your family for money, right? Uh, without them realizing you're asking them for money. And like that first day comes in, you start getting email after email of pledge after pledge. And it's like, oh, this is really, really awesome. And so you, you start off like super excited. And then week two and week three, if you're doing a 30-day campaign, that's when it starts dropping off. And you kind of do this little – sometimes there's be days where there's there's no donations. And then you're looking at your, your graph and you've flattened out. And you're like, what if I don't make this? Because it's Kickstarter and you might lose it if you don't make that minimum. Mm-hmm. And then you start panicking. You start having to do like the marketing. And you're trying to get people like that don't know you because you've already exhausted all your friends. Now you're trying to get people who don't know you to pay money. And then the fourth week comes along and that's when people pick up again. Uh, and then you're like, ah, and then it just gets crazy because you're looking at your minimum and trying to, yeah. So mm-hmm. it's every single day. It's like checking your notifications, checking the pledges, trying to see how much traffic you're getting, looking at your comments. And it's, it consumes the entire 30 days. How is that different than working on a product and trying to sell a product? Hmm. Well, the product thing lasts obviously longer than 30 days. All right. <laughs> You know, you know, people have gone through YC there, I think, or I think it's in general in startups, I think there's that famous graph that used to be on the whiteboard of YC, where it's, there's this initial bump of excitement, and then it drops and you have the trial of sorrow, mm-hmm. where you're, you know, the excitement worn off, and then you're just working at it and trying to get again, random people who don't know you to pay for what you built, kind of like the Kickstarter. But this is over, you know, years, and you're just waiting for that hockey stick or that that moment where things pick up, you know, and it's, I love building products. I actually, it's, it gets kind of addicting. I've done three Kickstarters. So I'm obviously addicted to this cycle and I love building products. And in both places, you have that, you know, one day is really awesome and the next day it's not, you know, it just products last longer. And then hopefully the highs are higher than the Kickstarter. Cause you know, you, it's not like raising money. You go in, you get $100,000 of pledges and you lose everything if you don't hit that minimum. Like yeah. at least you get, especially, I mean, if you're doing a convertible note, at least you'll get that. Right. You're all your money. You don't have to lose it. So you can compare product design with Indiegogo maybe because that one to keep the minimum. But anyways, it's still, it's all a lot more stress, a lot more challenge than say just, I'm not saying that employment is easy either, but at least with employment that you're not stressing about on the weekends, hopefully. So you had the successful Kickstarter and then how long did it take you to finish and release the book? 
So the first book, because I didn't know what I was doing, like I thought I did, but I didn't, I took was a year late. Like I on the Kickstarter, it says when you expect to give out your rewards. And I was a year late. Mm-hmm. So that was because, you know, all those things were like every piece of the process got a little bit delayed. And then the, the entirety was that year. And it was horrible. It was my husband. He is very understanding. <laughs> and I actually put him on my email. I get in, it would, I would get the email saying, you have a message from a Kickstarter backer or whatever it says. And I'm like, I can't even look at it. Andre, look at this and tell me if it's someone who's mad at me. Because <laughs> there are people who are, who are like, I paid for a book and I don't have it yet. Like they don't realize that's the whole point of Kickstarter. And I was doing updates right. and all that kind of stuff. But there's still people who are like, I gave you money and I don't have anything yet. And I'm really confused. And I happen like every single day I'll get an email like that. And I get affected by like if I'm not if I'm in a, a good mood I can get a lot of work done like mm-hmm. most people and if I'm in a bad mood and those emails will put me in a bad mood then it was hard to work and so eventually I was just like I need to just not look at them and then my husband can respond and pretend to be me if it was a bad one just so I can keep up my motivation for continuing to work on the book uh, but some of the reasons why it was delayed I didn't realize with printing I was I originally thought I want to support a US based printer as someone in California at the time which is something I still want to do. But then I looked at the prices for the local printers and a book of the quality I wanted was going to be at least $10 per book. And if I sold on Amazon, Amazon takes a, such a huge chunk of mm-hmm. every sale that then the book on Amazon would cost way more than it should. And then everything was kind of like, that. Well, I need to look for a way of uh, printing the books cheaper. So I ended up working with a company called Print Ninja, which is a great company. I've done all my printing with them for all of my books and they do great quality. Like I have an upgraded cover weight. There's a spot gloss in the cover. The paper quality is, is really good. It's full color and it comes out to like $3 per book because it prints in China. But because it prints in China, there is a two month delay unless I pay a ridiculous amount for air shipping between sending in my files and getting the books. So at the very end, I'm like, I'm done. I'm sending in my files to the printer. And then I get it back like, ah, I have to wait two months. And I had to send out an email to people being like, okay, two more months of waiting. And I'm not even going to be doing anything because I can't because the files are off the printer. Mm-hmm. So it was a lot of like learning turnaround times and how long it takes me to write and how long it takes me to edit. And it did some things to make it better. It's something that worked out really well was every time I finish a chapter, I ended up putting it onto Google Docs and I'd send it out to the backers just to be like, here's the content early because you backed my project. But because people are awesome, they then went through and corrected my spelling and grammar (laughs) and told me about the problems I had or anything that was confusing. So I ended up crowdsourcing my editing of the book, Mm -hmm. which was pretty cool too. So that was something I didn't expect, but I've been kind of doing that with every book since then, um, since it's it's a nice way of interacting Mm -hmm. with my backers. So it sounds like that first book was stressful from the Kickstarter and and challenging to get mm-hmm. out. So at what point did you decide to do another one? <laughs> so I did the first book and it did really well. And of course, then once the book is out, I'm like, oh, there's all these extra topics I can I could talk about that no one's really covering. And for Django, I will say that my book is a really awesome introduction into Django. But in terms of intermediate materials, there's not much there. There's a lot of advanced stuff. But I was I was thinking, okay, what's going to happen when someone finishes my tutorial? Or uh, another popular tutorial on Django is the Django Girls tutorial, which is free online. It's like, what happens when someone goes a workshop at a conference or reads my book or reads these other tutorials? And then they're like, now what? 
So I, was, I, I thought there was a good opportunity for me to do an add-on product. I could sell it with the original book, which, spoiler, it's that's been a really successful thing for me. I usually sell both books mm-hmm. rather than just one. So overall, my revenue has increased since doing that second book. And then I also had this existing audience on Kickstarter, which is really great. People who are already interested in tech, uh, knew me, knew me, knew I do stuff in Django. So I did the, the second book, which is Hello Web App, Intermediate Concepts. Name it the same thing was kind of a... I don't know if I would do that again. Uh, made mm-hmm. it a little more confusing. But yeah, I did another one. I want to say the Hello Web App, the book, officially came out May 4th. And I ended up starting the Kickstarter for the second book like that summer, like something really close after that first book was released to people. And um, I raised more money than the first Kickstarter, which I was like, okay, that's a good thing. That's a good sign uh, too. As long as I keep going up. Mm-hmm. And the book, I will say the second book is not as successful as the first book because it's more of like an add-on. Yeah. But it's overall, I think it was a good decision and it pairs really well with the first book. Mm-hmm. Were there other things that you did differently to either make it less stressful or hopefully more successful than the oh, first? Oh, yeah, definitely. I Actually, the second book, I believe I had the whole the first draft written. I, I'm pretty sure I did that because I think in my Kickstarter video, I have it all printed out on white paper. And I'm like, look, it's the first draft. It's already written. It's not going to be a year delayed because I was still embarrassed about being delayed for so long. Mm-hmm. So I was set on like my estimated times actually hitting those estimated times, which I did. I mm-hmm. had everything out, I believe, the same month that I said that the files and books would be released. So the first draft, draft was done. One thing I did with the first book, I also did in the second book, is I timed the Kickstarter campaign to a conference. So the first Kickstarter, I believe, was PyCon. Mm-hmm. So at PyCon, people who didn't know me, but I knew there was like, there's big names in Python at PyCon. And so I went up to them like, hi, I'm Tracy. You don't know me, but I'm writing this Kickstarter for this Django book. Maybe you could do a tweet for me. And then that actually was quite successful. Bugging people in person. Very good. It's harder very to say no. To yeah, exactly. Right. And I'm just being all like batting my eyes at them. Like, come on, please. And I did that with the same thing with the second book. I think I was the second book I was at DjangoCon. So at DjangoCon, I was like, that worked out really well for the last one. So I'm just going to DjangoCon and be like, hey, I'm doing a second book. Here's the Kickstarter campaign. And so I think that's another reason why the second campaign was successful. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like you really like publishing and doing books. <laughs> yeah. Is that sustainable for you? Do you envision being able to do that indefinitely and make new books and grow your revenue that way? Right. So I'll be real here. Uh, so I did the third book, which is the design book. And the design book was my design has a much bigger audience. And I was like, my first two books did pretty good for it being a, the niche of Django. And like, how much bigger could it be if I do design? And it hasn't gone as awesomely as I hoped. Not saying the book is not amazing. I, I think it's just my marketing and sales. Mm-hmm. Every time you launch a product or a book or whatnot, you kind of hope that it will just grow on its own without you. And every time it's like, ah, nope, I got to do marketing and actually have to do all this stuff. You know, why can't it go viral? Uh, So the design book raised more money than the other two Kickstarters, the Kickstarter for that book, which was awesome. And it's been doing pretty well in terms of bringing in revenue, but it's not enough to sustain me, the three books Mm -hmm. together. So I'm just looking at other places. I'm doing Reddit ads for the first time. Uh, so I'm figuring out how to do paid advertising and see if that's working for me. I'm looking into different ways of marketing a book. It's not going to be easy. I think it's always the hope 
I think it was Nathan Barry has been my mm-hmm. idol. Like he did all of his stuff and I was like, I want to do that. And he always yeah. released his numbers and there was like one year he made $280,000 and I was like, ooh, <laughs> I want to do that. My numbers are not near that. Mm-hmm. He does a really good job. I need to write more content essentially. Yeah. So we thought myself, we published books with traditional publishers and then we started self-publishing online and mm-hmm. the performance of each of the books we've done is radically different. And I have sort of developed the hypothesis that it's almost counterintuitive. You started to allude to it. It's like design is a bigger area, so I should be able to make more money in there. But I think what we found is that the more niche we are, the more specific we are, whether it be on a particular technology or even just how to do one thing, those books perform better. I think they're easier for people to find. They're easier for people to convince themselves to buy. Right. Yeah. And so those books tend to do better, which yeah. was surprising to us because we did the same thing, which was we sort of took a, an idea that we thought was more broad appeal. And for a lot of the same reasons, it didn't perform as well as we were hoping. Yeah, that's kind of the conclusion that I've I've been thinking yeah, obviously I don't have, it's hard to like have data and having these mm-hmm. gut feelings that this is what's going on. But I, I agree with you. I've been starting to update some of my marketing materials and testing out really like emphasizing the book is like design written for developers or like trying to right. narrow the audience for the design book and seeing if that leads to an uptick of sales or an uptick of people talking about it online. Mm-hmm. But right now I'm looking into releasing the new version of Hello Web App, that first book for Django. Going back to originally, I wasn't going to do this. I was, I released it free online. So if you go to hellowebbooks.com, you can find the HTML for the Django tutorial online. But now I'm thinking on actually doing a second book printing. So Hello Web App is updated for Python 3 and Django 2.0, which are both out now. And especially Python 3 should have been done a while ago. Um, and doing another like a mini Kickstarter just to help mm-hmm. pay for the printing round for that book and kind of going back and emphasizing my Django books because that worked out pretty well. And I'm just going to, since I have the ability right now to just kind of explore that, I'm going to try going back over that and see if that works out and let the design book continue to grow slowly as it has been. This is sort of a crazy idea that just occurred to me, but have you thought about basically becoming a publisher? Okay, so helping other technical authors do what you've done. I have because my website used to be hellowebapp.com. That's actually what titled the book because I found out that URL was available and I was like, well, there's my name in my book (laughs) if I got the URL. But then I I changed it, which is harder. It's not as nice. I changed it to hellowebbooks.com with the idea that it would give me the flexibility to launch books and other topics like the design book. But also, yes, I know how to do the editorial design. I can do that part of the publisher about, you know, someone gives me the content. I actually, that would be quite joyful time for me doing the typography for the book. Mm -hmm. I very much enjoy it. I thought about that, like, bringing someone in and and working together and releasing books. I'm not there yet, but it's not something I'll ever roll out. And it's something I'll probably look into with that once I have time. Mm -hmm. It's fun. I I think most publishers would probably hear me say that. And they're like, oh, publishing is a dying business, you know? (laughs) So there's that problem. (laughs) I think (laughs) think maybe traditional publishing might be, but 
online technical book <laughs> that doesn't mm-hmm. seem to be a dying business if That's anything true. it's uh, it feels like it's flourishing you mentioned nathan barry and we've yeah. done some things and had success and individual lots of individuals have done things and had success so yeah, and now the new thing is video courses, and that's another thing I'm looking mm-hmm. into. My videos for the design book are better quality than my um, Hello Web App videos, which kind of DIY'd them. Mm-hmm. That's another reason I was thinking of doing this mini Kickstarter to update Hello Web App stuff so I can have some money to help me re-record all the videos and release it as a nicer video course. And I'm also looking at hosting my own video courses, but also looking at things like Treehouse and Pluralsight. And I just reached out to Pluralsight yesterday uh, see if they were interested in they have all these things have exclusivity agreements, but right. I think there is a way I can use this format for teaching Django and programming. I have a very specific idea in how things should be taught to complete beginners and using that format and applying it to these other platforms and seeing if using their network will bring in more revenue. Mm-hmm. It's always one of those kind of like, maybe this will work. Huh? Maybe this will work. <laughs> have to keep being positive and trying new things. Mm-hmm. You've obviously built a reputation on Python and Django. Is there other technologies that you're thinking about or, or interested in now? Yes. What's, what yeah. has you excited? So the thing is with Wedding Wedding Lovely is that my, like all those web technologies that have been really popular in the last two years, I know nothing. And it's so frustrating, but it's because I'm running a startup too. And Wedding Lovely is on Python and right. HTML and CS, oh, and SAS, I guess. I'm running that. And that's the time I guess I could be spending researching React and Angular and all that, all that jazz. So I, I mentioned that I have a particular idea on how things can be taught. Mm-hmm. And that's essentially not, this isn't where we're not going to work for everybody. But I think there's people out there like me that when they're learning something new, especially when it comes to programming, sometimes a lot of tutorials will be like, here's this new concept, which is here's the background on that concept. And here's how it relates to other things. And here's all these other things it relates to. And they start going into the weeds. And I think that tutorials, at least in my style, bypass any background information, any kind of like extra information. Because I I feel like you have to get someone from zero to one and get them this feeling of success. And then you can lead them into what are methods in classes? What is this? What is that? So I think I can take that format where I I walk someone through building something real. With Hello Web App, I also teach a very generic project. It's I teach building a collection of things. And someone could use the Hello Web App tutorial to build a Twitter clone, which is like a collection of tiny lines of content, or a Facebook clone with Facebook of your, where it was a collection of bio information. So I I wanted someone to build something unique, and then that helps programming stick more. So that's Mm -hmm. something I could apply to other languages. If I also had another me to research and learn those languages before writing. It's definitely something I want to do. I just uh, haven't gone around to it yet. Yeah, it's tough. Mm-hmm. And it's changing. JavaScript stuff is changing so fast. Yeah. So every time I think I'm going to learn this and I'm like, wait, maybe in two months that's going to be obsolete. I don't know. Well, you have you have to balance your time in actually delivering things on real working products Mm-hmm. Then you yeah. have the other work you're doing for your books and that kind of thing that are already out. And I, this is something that I face too. It's like, well, doing something new, I need to make sure that it's worthwhile. So I, you, you already said it. You got to make sure it's not a fad. But also mm-hmm. that if you're doing it to maybe do a new tutorial or you can get distracted or weighed down by the fact, oh, can I build a business out of this? Can I build a product yeah. out of it? Or is it worthwhile? Yeah, totally. This December... I failed at this. I told myself I was going to learn iOS development. I just, 
not, it doesn't relate to anything that I'm doing right now, which is, I mm-hmm. think, one of the reasons why I'm interested in it, because it I can't apply it to the book stuff or the Wedding Lovely stuff. So it's something just completely new and maybe fun. But it's ran out of time. But I was going through yeah. tutorials, and I was I have an idea for something I actually want to build. So hopefully that's still on my plate. But having an actual project to build, I'm hoping that that will help it stick. So someday that's how I, I learn. Will, yeah, it's how I've always done it. And having something that I actually am interested in and need to do is the motivation that I need to learn something new. Yeah, then that, that's another reason why I did Hello Web App because the mm-hmm. first couple of chapters I go over, I try to explain that is that you're not just building a blog that you're just following a tutorial verbatim. Like hopefully they'll use this to build something that matters to them and then they'll have an idea of, oh, this website would work really well with this, you know, a different feature that's not covered in Hello Web App. And hopefully it'll encourage someone, them to start doing the research and get them into that whole programming mental model. So that was my my real goal with that was kind of introduce like a work on a real project. Also uh, work on a small project. I did the whole thing about MVPs and don't get you know too big of an idea of what you want to build, mm-hmm. like narrow it down. And then I jump into the whole, here's how you work with Django. Well, I really admire the breadth of work and success that you've had. (laughs) And I sincerely wish you the best. Thank you. And thank you for sharing with us. I I really appreciate it. Thank you. I doing these things always like I, you know, working for myself, there's days where I'm just like, I am not making enough money, which is why I let it off in this thing. But it is a reminder that I've done a lot of cool things. At the end of the day, the last eight years have been super fun. So it's been fun. And I've learned so much from working on these various projects. So we mentioned a few of your different projects and products, and they'll all be linked in the show notes. But if people want to follow along with you or follow your writing, where's the best place to do that? I wish I did Tracy Osborne on the internet. That would have been smart. Uh, however, I used lime daring. Lime like the fruit and daring like daring do. I don't know. That one's hard to explain. But limedaring.com is my website. I have, have lime daring on Twitter. I have lime darling on Twitter. If you get mixed up like most people do, including myself, that's the best place I usually share. I chit chat on Twitter and write on my website and on GitHub and I'm lime daring everywhere. So at least no one else has that name. It'd be easy to find me. Cool. All of those things will be linked in the show notes for this episode at giantrobots.fm slash 265. This podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot and produced and edited by Tom Obarski. Tracy, thanks again for joining me. Thank you. This has been super fun. And thanks for listening. See you next time. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, Raleigh, and Washington, D.C., let's build something great together.